0: Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have an epic and incredible episode for you guys, as always, as we like to do. This week, I don't think we're going to talk about anything Israel-related because there's not quite a new angle to talk about. I mean, the war is going on. The protests are getting bigger. Most of my takes have already been um, for the previous week's. Not really a new, uh, highly respected spin on this. I mean, my already my opinions on it are already there. Uh, I can't really give you the up to date <laughs> war war update uh, war updates uh, up to date war updates, of course. Um, and and the protests are about the same as they always are. I mean, people are just going more insane about this stuff. I may I may go into a little bit about the protests and stuff for our second topic before the League questions. Uh, and some of the League questions may bring it up. But so I just it, want to give a forewarning that we probably aren't going to talk about much about Israel specifically. Uh, but the main topic we're going to talk about is 2024 today. Uh, we talked about the elections um, last week in t- in a column and in the IQ supplement, a culturally libertarian electorate. And this week I'm going to be more specific about... What's it going to shape up like, how we're stuck with Biden, and how Trump is definitely going to be the nominee? A lot of these things it's already been discussed in prior podcasts, but it's always good to have a reminder with new events. And I think the one thing that we really need to dispel is the idea that Democrats are going to replace Biden. The only way that Biden is not the nominee is if he has like a stroke or some other health health ailment. That incapacitates him before the Democratic convention. That is the only way he's going to drop out. They are not going to convince him to drop out. As I've always pointed out this take. I already wrote an article about this. But to just reemphasize. Is his relationship with his dogs. And how he refused to get rid of them. He did eventually relent and get rid of them. But these are a very minor thing. This is not his life goal. This is not his main mission in life. Uh, His dogs were not that. Being in the White House is both he and his wife's mission. And they feel that there is no reason for them to leave. Any problems that they may have, it's something wrong with somebody else. And that's even what their dogs with. It's like, look at the, the dogs. The dogs were terrorizing Secret Service. Secret Service were not able to do their jobs because of these stupid dogs that kept biting them. Both, uh, I think Major was the first one. And then they had they had a dog that was older that was not biting anyone. And then they had a younger dog that they had to get rid of. Uh, and the older dog died and they all just replaced it with Commander. Commander was the worst one. as a bit like over a dozen people. And people were terrified of even walking past it. Uh, that's the Biden White House. And even though this was clearly something at fault with them. And there was an easy remedy of mainly heavily training the dog or getting rid of it. They refused to. Joe and Joe Biden thought that it was other people's problems. And even the White House blamed the Secret Service for the dog attacking them. Like, oh, they were just not having very friendly expressions. And they only attack people with not with unfriendly expressions. Like, Secret Service are meant to be bodyguards. They're meant to be intimidating and on alert at all times. They're not meant to be smiling and waving and, you know, clapping their hands and stuff for the dogs. Even, But even, even believing that that's the excuse for the dog's behavior, that's a dumb excuse. And because they have a reason to look unfriendly and intimidating, their bodyguards, their secret service, that's their job. And, but that was, they decided that the real fault was not with the Bidens, not with their stupid dogs. It was with the secret service. It was with the victims. They victim blamed. How, how dare they? I can't believe the left would do that. And so that's a minor issue. That's just their damn dogs. Now let's go to a bigger issue of the presidency, of them staying in the White House and being powerful and the most powerful people on earth. Why would they give that up? There's no reason for them to give that up they, in their minds. They think that they're very popular. They just need a, you know, it's just the, the evil media that's making them out to be seen now. Or it's the Democrats not supporting them enough. Or it's these ultra mega attacks. And then they can just say, look, Everyone, you know, Biden's poll numbers were low in 2022, and everyone predicted that he's an albatross around the Democrats' neck. And guess what? Democrats had pretty decent results in 2022. And 2022 was a referendum on Biden. I think if they had gotten killed, there would have been maybe some way to convince Biden to not run again. The fact that they won, I think he might have still tried to run, but I think they would have had a better argument if they had gotten killed in 2022. And <laughs> once they won, he felt like, oh, well, I'm popular. i actually winning elections. I should run, and I should stay running. And I think that's convincing. And I think the latest results in 2023 show, once again, that there's not a huge motivation to get rid of him. There's not this huge drag at the box office. <laughs> I almost said box office. Yeah, the uh, summer blockbuster is hitting at the ballot box Um He's, uh, that's what it's happening. He's not a huge drag on the party. So that argument isn't as strong as it was, but they are seeing the bad polling. I mean, he is losing to a guy who's been indicted four times and is having a, a civil fraud case brought against him is, you know, had a judgment, uh, made against him for allegedly raping a woman of obviously, uh, f- fake news, obviously. But this is who he's running against and he's losing against them in polls. And last week there was a, you know, a New York Times poll. I think it was last week or two weeks ago, but there's this New York Times poll, which this is something they can't ignore. They can just say, oh, it's you gov, oh it's conservative, you know, it's not a repeatable source. New York Times is one of the most repeatable polls you can have. And it was like a front page news. And it's like saying, Trump's beating you. And this is a huge alarm for them. And you saw a lot of Biden supporters then started to say, oh, we need someone new. We need someone different. We need to move them on. But they're arguing against a senile old man and his power hungry wife. They aren't leaving. <laughs> they are not leaving the White House. And I use these two. Exa- I mean, the best example of it ever is just Woodrow Wilson in twenty twenty or 19, 1920 when he is incapacitated by stroke. His wife and an assistant had to be the real president, uh, do the presidential responsibilities, and he had had a near a semi recovery, but he was certainly not near one hundred percent, but he could like walk around and have discussions and he still wanted to run for president, and his wife was encouraging him to do it they wanted to stay in the white House and eventually Democrats were like uh, one he was like not very popular two they Democrats started to learn that he was no uh, condition to run for president again, or even be president. So they did not pick him at the at the Democratic convention. Biden is in decent physical health for a man of his age. I mean, for an eighty one year old, he's I think he's turning eighty one in, uh, in a few weeks. Uh, he's remarkably fit. The the problem is his mental health (laughs) and his uh, his mental uh, condition. But I think Democrats see that he's going to be running against a guy who has been indicted four times, who likely will be convicted in 2024, and they just say, well, let's run him anyway. And they also don't have another person waiting in the wings. Kamala would probably be worse. I think that they, they understand that Kamala would actually be worse candidate. Because with Biden, they can hide him. They can bring out the lovable grandpa act again. You know, they can do that. Kamala is so unlikable. They can't hide Kamala. Kamala would have to be on the campaign trail. She would also not be the president. The president would be president. Okay? She's the vice president. She can go out and campaign and do that. And the more people see of her, the more gaff she makes, the more like just weirdness of exhibited by Kamala, they know she would be terrible. I mean, she has the lowest approval rating of a vice president in history. This includes, uh, you know, Dick Cheney and others. People really don't like Kamala. The Democrat base doesn't like Kamala. No one, except for K Hive on Twitter, which is most likely a bot army, nobody likes Kamala. And I think they realize that she would probably be worse than Biden in a, in a general election. And I think they're right. So they don't have Kamala. Newsom, they don't want to anoint Newsom. Noise Newsom, I think they also realize that there's problems with Newsom on a level. I mean, California, everyone's leaving. Uh, he's also had, you know, he's having to negotiate, navigate the middle lane between the far left base and the moderates, which you know his, you know, going back and forth between them has alienated both crowds. I mean, a lot of the far left is going to say, well, he hasn't done enough on reparations and. Other things, and the moderates are just going to say, look at how he's turned, you know, look at the California. Nobody wants to live there. And this guy is responsible for it. I, they don't really, and even if it came down to where uh, Gavin Newsom is the candidate, that would mean an open primary. And the open primary is not what they want to have. They do not want to have a vicious primary battle going into 2024. They just want to have someone, that person is it, and there you go. And also they are running out of time to have a competitive primary is that a lot of the deadlines in key states, you know, key primary states have already passed. It is passed in five states. I I tweeted this last week. And so this is it. It's passed in Nevada, New Hampshire, Alabama, Michigan, and South Carolina, and then Florida and California. Both huge primary states are going to be up by the end of this month. So. That's going to be uh, a lot of states that a challenger can't win. And I think that there's no challenger afoot. If you were seeing somebody like Newsom being serious about this, he would, about challenging Biden, he would, there would be a lot of reports about how he's getting ready to do this. And he's pretty much has to do this by the end of the month, which uh, we're almost halfway through the, <laughs> this month. Um, I, I don't think he's going to be up there. I mean, they just have Dean Phillips who is running not a campaign to actually win over Democratic voters. I don't. It's really a Lincoln Project uh, idea for them to grift off more money and, and get more money from people. I don't think it's actually going to be a serious challenge to Biden. There's not... I don't even... Dean Phillips isn't even running on a campaign against Biden. He's just pretending that there's not a Democratic incumbent who's running for president again, and that he's just running on this moderate, no-labels platform that's appealing to Lincoln Project um, operat- operatives, I guess. And that's it. And it's not appealing to the base. You know, there's no far left base. And who, who the hell knows who, the, who, who Dean Phillips is? Nobody knows who he is. He is actually, you know, a congressman. So we will give him that. But the message he's running on is not the message to run against Biden. So that's it. And Newsom is doing all these moves to make himself a national figure and stuff. Because I think Newsom feels that biden may drop out and he wants to position himself in the best way to be there um you know if there is a health problem you know and they have to go to the convention maybe he would be strongly situated but it's gonna be a it's gonna be a situation we haven't seen in a long time it would if there is someone besides biden it would have to be a serious health problem that you know biden like it's like something like biden can't even talk in public anymore He could already not really talk in public, but you know, like he really can't talk in public anymore. And Democratic leaders are like, okay, we have to get somebody else. And then they would do that at a convention. And I don't even know how that would work or who they would pick. And that would be out of voters' hands. That would just be within the party operatives and the party leaders. And you know, it would be a real throwback to how primaries worked. in the before the 1970s, which I mean, the 1970s initiated the modern primary process where, you know, the ordinary voters picked the person in the primary states. And then that person went to the convention and the person with most delegates from the races then became the nominee. While before that, it was, you know, the primaries had some impact, but it was mainly determined at the convention. And this is not out of the realm of possibility that Biden has a serious health episode. He is in his 80s. Uh, these things happen to people at that age, especially if they're working a lot and especially when they're in the kind of condition that Biden is. So this is not out of the um, out of the uh, realm of possibility. This is this is very much where we could see this, uh, but uh, they just don't have that. And I think another big reason why the only way that they could defeat Biden is if somebody challenges him in the primary. The problem for anyone challenging in the primary is that they have nothing to run against him except that he's senile, and nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to say our president is brain dead, (laughs) and they don't. Nobody wants to run on that message. They have to have a clear message for saying, going to Democrat voters and saying, "Hey, this guy, he is not living up to the promises he made to the base. We want to replace him." And this is what they did, you know. And if you look at the past two times that a Democratic president was challenged by an insurgent in the primary, that they went on a message to appeal to the left saying that this guy is abandoning us. He is not living up to his promises. This is what Eugene McCarthy did in 68 and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who got in later. They were campaigning against LBJ on Vietnam. They were saying this war is take is disregarding and undermining all of our shared liberal principles and it's a terrible war, and our president is fully committed to it, and I'm running to end the war. And this was a popular message with a large part of the Democratic base and gave them a base of support to challenge the president. And eventually, this is the issue that forced LBJ to not run again. And this was so they had an issue. Eugene McCarthy's first start out had an issue to challenge LBJ on, which is Vietnam in 1980. Ted Kennedy was able to challenge Jimmy Carter for disregarding the principles of the New Deal and their liberal economic policies, because a lot of people imagine Jimmy Carter is as far leftist. But no, Jimmy Carter actually had fairly conservative economic policies, even from like the social policies. It's hard to say um, how much more he was not a member of the far left. He's become more associated with the far left due to his foreign policy takes and wanting peace. And especially actually with the Palestine stuff, which is not, I I don't, our side would not see him as a leftist for this. I mean, because of our Israel stance, but he was ultimately seen as a far leftist for meeting with, you know, dangerous radicals from like Hamas. I think he did meet people from Hamas and the PLO. And so they imagined that he was this huge leftist. But as president, he was actually very moderate. And Democrats didn't like him because they felt that he was abandoning the labor unions and their traditional working class base by giving tax cuts to the rich by implementing deregulation, uh, deregulation and by undermining the new deal order that they had built up and, you know, championed for years and years. And they, so Ted Kennedy had this message to run on. Now he wasn't successful because he ran a terrible campaign. He had Chappaquiddick that was only 11 years before and 1969 and Jimmy Carter. Uh, at first, had when the primary mattered, the Iran hostage crisis actually helped him. Uh, so it did help defeat any uh, a primary challenge. Uh, but when Ted Kennedy got in, you know there were polls showing that there more Democrats favored Ted Kennedy because he was more clo- he was closer to that liberal base versus. Jimmy Carter, who was an outsider. They didn't like Jimmy Carter in 76. They tried to do a never Carter type thing at the convention, but they couldn't stop it. And it was just because Carter was an outsider to the Democratic establishment. He was not connected with their traditional constituent base, you know, of labor unions, um, minority groups, and all that. He was not connected with that. He was not, you know, very socially progressive and certainly not economically pro- pro- progressive. And he also, I mean, he also wanted a balanced budget bill, which was also going to further undermine uh, the welfare state favored by liberals. So there was a lot of reasons to go after him. And even when you look at Republican challengers, uh, famous ones to their presidents, you know, it was based on like something they could appeal to conservatives. You know, with uh, Gerald Ford, Reagan ran on a strong conservative message saying this guy, he's he's still keeping up to taunt with the Soviets. No, we want to go full on attack the Soviets He's not implementing our, you know, he's keeping gov- big government around. He's failing these conservative objectives. We don't like him for this. And Reagan nearly beat Gerald Ford in '76. It came extremely close. It, it really, when it went to the convention, Ford had a, a slight lead, and he was able to keep that lead. But it was unclear whether he would come out of that convention as the as the nominee. But he did. Uh, So it was a very close election. And then in 92, when Pat Buchanan challenged uh, George H.W. Bush, he ran on how he abandoned the tax cuts, or he banned, or not abandoned tax cuts, but raised taxes and violated conservative principles. And so these were things that they could rally the base around. With Biden, there is no issue. Biden's actually been very left-wing. I I think a lot of us know this, but he's been very left-wing on these stuff. He's been arguably the most pro-union president we've ever had. I mean, he went to the union, you know, the UAW protest and he was on the front line with them. He even wore a UAW t-shirt uh, at a rally. He is very much on the side of the unions, and that is keeping that core constituency, which is a huge part of democratic politics, loyal to him. He's also been giving out, uh, making all these radical appointments throughout the government through all that, DOJ, Interior, a lot of the stuff that goes along with regulation and other things that has kept the far left constituencies happy. Um, he's, you know, gone full bore with, uh, you know, the DEI stuff, and and on even on immigration where he sometimes gets criticism from the far left. He's ultimately doing what they want by not securing the border and letting them all in and giving tons of parole to them. And it's really just the far left, which, has, which is an incredibly unpopular position, but is represented by a lot of their lawmakers. Because there was this really mild thing Biden did earlier early this year where he set up, you know, he's giving parole to 30,000 migrants every month from Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti and Nicaragua. And at the same time, he's saying uh, those who come to the border not through the parole program will be deported immediately. And they really aren't even doing that. But they said they are. And over 70 Democrats, you know, signed a letter to uh, protest that. But even then, like no Democrat wants to run on total on like complete explicit open borders because they know how unpopular that position is. So they don't really have it. Even on foreign policy, he brought the troops home back home from Afghanistan That's what the left likes. The left likes that he's continuing to fund the war in Ukraine. They're very happy with that. The only thing where there is division among the left is Palestine. But even with Palestine and Israel, Biden is being more to the center on that than some of the Democrats, like somebody like Cory Booker and John Fetterman and the Republican Party that want even more. And there is, you know, saying like, okay, Israel, we're going to fund you right now, but this might not last forever. And you may, and you really have to follow our guidelines about how you're f- following the war. And there's more pressure exerted on Israel than otherwise. But there is a lot of controversy. I mean, look at all the protests, and they're all blaming Biden. They even protested outside of Biden's home in Delaware. But that is not a constituency, uh, that is not as large a constituency as the constituency that was opposed to Vietnam. First off, Vietnam, the, that more directly impacted the lives of ordinary Americans because this was, there were these were their kids and neighbors that were going to fight and die in Southeast Asia. Here, most of these are college students. A lot of them aren't even American <laughs> citizens who are taking the streets. And it's not as important of an issue as Vietnam is. It's an important issue to these people, but these are don't represent a... Mainstream America. They don't represent, uh, uh, as I said, a lot of them are on student visas, or you know, immigrants who don't even have, you know, uh, who aren't even naturalized. So these aren't really. You're not really responding to a constituency here, and in their position is only represented by the squad, and the squad is not the representative of the majority of the Democratic base, and. You know the Democratic Party was very much divided on Vietnam, but they, you would say a very slight majority or maybe even a plurality. I think there could have been a lot of don't knows and round 68, one of the war to end here with Palestine. And it was a very important issue to them because they were seeing, you know, they're very much worried about either being drafted themselves or, you know, if they're older, their kids being drafted. And so this was an issue that directly affected their lives. Israel for the most part, does not directly affect the lives of ordinary Americans. Or rather, let me let me say that the conflict right now doesn't really impact, at least not to the extent that Vietnam was. And so you could have a candidate run on a full-on pro-Palestine position, you know, ceasefire now. We're um you know, we're ending the war, we're gonna turn against Israel. And there is a constituency for that. They would probably win a Michigan primary, but there's not a large constituency for that. And most of the Democrats would not go along with it. I mean, when Bernie Sanders, who represents, you know, the most far left senator, and he's siding with Israel on this, that's a good sign that this is not as uh, dividing the Democratic Party as you would expect. It's definitely, it's definitely a division between old and young I mean, most of the voters, uh, Democrats who are over 35 are either just ambivalent or they're on the side of Israel. While the ones under 35, maybe even under 30, are fully on pro-Palestine, and this is an important issue for them. But this is just like the activists and organizers. This isn't that important of an issue, even for, you know, the majority of Zoomers. I mean, Zoomers may be like, oh, I guess ceasefire now, but they're much more concerned about other issues like abortion, And that's another issue they can't run on. So there is no issue for a guy to run to the left of Biden. And running to the center or to the right of Biden is just not going to work either. Because Biden, despite having, you know, if you go line by line and it's actually a very radical left agenda, that's, um, you know, so it'd be hard for a left to say that he's abandoned and you know, betrayed the left on that. But even from a center, he has a centrist appearance. And it's hard to say what they want. And they're not going to say like, oh, he's too pro-union. That would never carry any water in a Democratic primary. So you have to even just look how Dean Phillips is running a campaign. He is running a campaign acting like Biden is not running. And he's just running a centrist, no labels campaign. And it's likely not going to work. So even if there was a challenger, they have no issue to go against. There's no Vietnam for them. There is no tax cuts for the wealthy. There is no tax spike as it was for the Republicans or there's no um, detente foreign policy. There's none of that. There is no clear issue outside of the Israel conflict, which maybe if that escalates, into next year, that would be one, but already they would have, all these candidates would have missed the deadline. And even if it escalates to, to an extent that Biden feels is dangerous, he most likely is going to impose or really strongly push for a ceasefire in Israel. Cause he's not, he is much more responsive to the far left base on this issue than past presidents. Uh, To the pro-Palestine side And I think, I mean, in looking at all the staffers And the young people working in the administration They're overwhelmingly pro-Palestine And eventually if this war drags on And it looks bad for America's stance in the Middle East And, you know, they're worried about having to take in uh, Millions of uh, million Palestinians and other things Well, I don't know, Democrats might like that for (laughs) no matter what But as long as this conflict really starts to hurt Biden in the polls, I think he will, you know, try to impose uh, a withdrawal from Israel. So I think he would even take away that issue. So there's nothing there's really no issue to emphasize this point. There's no issue for a Democrat candidate to challenge Biden on the left and a centrist candidate due to his appearance of being moderate uh, Biden's appearance of being moderate. There's not really an issue for that person. And there's no base for that either. And so that's what's happening. So Biden Democrats are stuck with him whether they like it or not. The only thing that they can hope for is that he gets a health uh scare that incapacitates him. And even what's going on with Congress, you know, the the uh, the investigations and stuff and uh, the appearance of wrongdoing on Biden, that's not going to hurt him among Democrats. That's a rallying around the base for, for Biden. And it's just the same way looking at what happened with Trump's impeachment in 2019. You know, the Ukraine phone call hurt didn't hurt Trump at all among Republicans. If anything, it helped him solidify his support among Republicans. And it's the same with his indictments. Like That's solidifying support. If they... If your supporters can view this as a political witch hunt by your political enemies, they're going to stand by you. There's not going to be, this is no longer, we're no longer living in the America of Watergate time where there was this belief that there's this objective uh, nonpartisan authorities that could convince you otherwise. And this was really wrong. Even if you voted for Nixon, you just have to understand that this is what he's doing is wrong. And there was a lot of conservatives who were leading the fight against Nixon. It wasn't just all libtards. And so there was this um, uh, cr- uh, transpartisan partisan uh, concern for that. But that's like impossible to have. If you're a conservative, you're going to stand with Trump despite his legal problems. If you're a liberal, you're going to stand with Biden despite his legal problems. And the fact that this is being led by conservatives in Congress who You know, who seem to just want to, uh, in their mind, indict Biden on whatever they can find and are attacking his innocent little uh, child and Hunter Biden. They're just not they're tuning out. They're not bothered by this at all. This is not an issue at all for Democrats. And so that's not even a problem for them. I mean, unless they find a video call with Biden telling Chinese officials, I will steal state secrets to you if you pay my son a lot of money. Uh, which they're not going to find i mean most of the other stuff is just like oh they got a two hundred thousand dollar check who cares like that democrats are not going to be bothered by any of this stuff unless they found something like that where like you know even the deep state would be uh, very upset about that they're not going to get rid of him, and they're not going to find something like that so unless there's a health problem which is uh it's it is possible with his age you know he is the going to be the nominee he's going to be the guy that Trump runs against. And that's another thing to bring in mind is that this is just going to be a rematch between Biden and Trump. You know, I used to always speculate that maybe Trump's legal problems get so bad that he may drop out in favor of another Republican who promises a pardon. I don't believe he's going to do that at all. Like Biden, the only way that he will not be the Republican candidate is if he has a health problem that incapacitates him. And they just have to to go along i mean there is something that maybe he is in a jail and he physically can't run for president <laughs> i mean there is like a possibility but um uh you know that have to happen before the convention like maybe if he's not allowed to show up at the convention i don't know what republicans would do in that scenario they may just run trump anyway because they're f- afraid of of what might happen if they don't run Trump because Trump may get his one phone call out of the jail cell. It's like, I hate who they put up. Don't vote for Nikki. Vote for me. And, you know, just like that, like a prison phone call, like he calls into Hannity, calls, does a phoner from his prison cell to Hannity. And he's like, don't vote for Nikki, um, who is who they would replace Biden, uh, Trump with. Uh, It's not going to be DeSantis. And you know that would that would kill Republicans in uh, in the general election. Uh, so, but I I don't I don't think that's going to happen. I don't, first off I, they're going to have a tough time trying to put him in a jail cell because a Secret Service Secret Service is not going to allow him to be put in a Georgia state prison uh, next to like the gang bangers from Atlanta. You know the, they're not going to allow that, and they're not going to allow. And if it's even a federal conviction, they're not going to put him in a supermax. They're either going to put him on house arrest or. They're going to build his own, uh, like his own prison for him. Uh, That's, that's what's going to be. Uh, But I don't know if he'll even be, you know, there might be a, there'll be a long appeals process, even if he gets convicted. I don't think he'll go straight to jail. So uh, he'll probably be allowed to run for president. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, This all, that's the one thing to keep in mind. I don't know what would happen. So actually with Trump, uh, (laughs) maybe if he is uh, uh, detained (laughs) In a certain area, he can't physically campaign or if he has, uh, you know, that's actually true. If he can't physically campaign either due to a health problem or uh, uh, detention, (laughs) he can't. uh, That's the only thing that will be keep him from running for president. But even if I think he gets convicted before the convention, I don't think he will be in jail yet uh, because of, like I said, the appeals process. Um, and other things, I think he will still have freedom to campaign um, throughout the, the presidency. And, and there's going to be controversy even if Judge tries to limit his ability to campaign. So I don't know. What, I don't know what. Um, it's all it's all unprecedented territory. But I think, you know, he's going to still run for president. He's still going to say, even if he's not. Uh, you know, he's in a jail cell. He's going to still be telling his followers like the day before jail is like right in Trump. Don't support whoever the Republicans put out. And Republicans may just have, uh, (laughs) just say, you know, he's going to win the primary outright. You know, they're, they're not going to get rid of him. I mean, his first trial is supposed to start before super Tuesday. And already by that time, he's going to be, have won the primaries by then with a decisive majority. And then the fact that his trial starts and how much Republicans rally around him with his legal problems, he's probably going to do insanely well in Super Tuesday. And so he will have all the delegates lined up by probably middle, maybe middle of March that he needs. Like there's not going to be any serious challenge to him. And so he's going to win the primary outright. What's going to happen is there could be uh, shenanigans at the convention and they try to do something there. But it's like, do Republicans want to risk the wrath of Trump by getting another candidate? Or do they just run him and, <laughs> and focus on the down-ballot races? Probably for their sake, would probably be a lot smarter for down ballot. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how his election chances would be <laughs> if he's in a jail cell. Uh, I mean, Biden would probably not run either. He would just stay at the White House napping. So it would be a. a there would not be a lot of campaign events <laughs> in that presidential race uh, if that happens. I don't. But as I, I keep repeating myself, I don't think he would even be. I don't think he'll be in a jail cell. Um by the time of the convention so he'll still be able to campaign even if he is convicted that's my thought process on it and so i think that's what it is but i mean they can't get rid of trump it's already seeing this in their primary you know this is one unlike with biden there are serious people who are directly challenging him in the primary and they're all in the low teens while trump's you know lead in the primary keeps increasing you know it started last beginning this year, he was barely at 50%. You know, it had gone down to 50%. Everyone's like, it's over for Trump. Now it's at 60%. And this just continues. And once it's like inevitable that Trump's inevitability, it's going to go up to roughly two-thirds of the electorate. This is what happened. I was around in 2016 where, you know, Trump had a lot of trouble getting into the 30s uh, when he was a frontrunner. You know, he's always around 25% in early 20s throughout 2015 when he was running. Then when he announced the Muslim ban, it finally got into the 30s. And then when he began starting actually winning these races and people actually came to saying, this is serious. Actually, I can vote for Trump. And a lot of people were like, I can't vote for Trump. He's a TV show host. He's this guy, I can't vote for him. But once they realize that he's actually a serious candidate, other people are voting for him, then he was starting to get to 30s and then 40 percent and then winning these primaries by over 50 percent. And so this is once it's realized and people are starting to realize that Trump is just going to be the candidate. He is, you know, just going to blow everyone out of the water and his poll supports are going to so, so show that. And so i also going to sh- show that in the early primary states. So there's no option of any of these candidates directly beating Trump. And they can't really hope for a conviction before the primary. I don't know when Georgia's the trial date for that. That's all in flux. And Trump will definitely be able to delay that, uh, even if it is during the primary. The DC document case is the one that's before Super Tuesday. I have a feeling that he'll even manage to delay that somehow. I don't know if he'll delay that for the whole year, but I think he will delay that through most of the primary. And he, last week, the, um, I think I called it the documents case. That's not the documents case. I said the DC case. That's the J6, stop the seal stuff. And then there's the documents case, which the trial date, the judge, which is a Trump appointee, very conservative, said she's sticking with the May trial date, but then she's open to changing it when they go to scheduling in March. Likely, she's going to delay it because he's going to be the presidential nominee. And that's going to be a convincing argument to delay it is that he has to run for president. And she's, of course, going to delay it prior to after uh, 2024. So and that's like Trump's big hope is that he basically delays all his legal problems till after uh, the election which there's still a good chance of him doing that I think the toughest one he has is the DC case I think with the Georgia with all these you know the plead like these multiple other cases happening the fight over whether it should be handled by state jurisdiction or federal jurisdiction I think he'll be able to delay that for you know a while. Uh, you know, he's got a smart legal team and that's their main strategy is just delaying it till after the election. And as long as he's not convicted and he's running against senile Biden, his chances remain strong for winning. And so <laughs> I don't know what will happen when he becomes president and then they all want to have, well, he, they're just not going to have the federal trials, but I don't know what happens in Georgia. So that's it. But I, I, the... Real key thing here is that Trump and Biden are going to be the nominee are going to be the nominees. It's going to be a rematch. That's maybe not as exciting for the news media. I think the news media wants something new and different, but it is going to be a rematch between these two. And Trump is proving why he should be the candidate. I mean, he, um, you know, New York Times had this awesome article about how he's going to bring back this really hardcore immigration policy, which you're just reading it in. If you care about our immigration policies at all, you're like, this is awesome, like mass deportations, camps, uh, like insanely strong border wall. And you're going to be like, oh, he didn't do that last time. I think this time he's going to have people in there who are going to know how to get this done and they're going to get it done. He got much better people in the, you know, in his last two years of office. He will get those people back. It will be a priority for them. The only issue is going to be the legal fight over it. But they're going to have much better legal uh, team as well defending these cases. So I think Trump, you look at what happened in the debate last week. It's so listless. It's so low energy. It just seems like a sideshow because none of these people are, they're all 45 points down to Trump. And none of these people have like anything to really contribute. And Tim Scott's already dropped out. Probably going to help Nikki Haley. And that's what's going to happen in the primary. I think Nikki Haley will be doing a lot better than DeSantis in the primary. Because a lot of the moderate side is going to coalesce around Haley. There's not really much of a strong, hardcore, conservative, anti-Trump element outside of Twitter. And that's the element that DeSantis is... Appealing to, and over time, that's going to dwindle. And a lot of those people are just supporting DeSantis because he's not Trump. Are just going to switch over to Nikki Haley, and so that's what's going to happen in the Republican uh, the 2024 race is that it's going to be a rematch between Trump and Biden. And we're going to have more thoughts on this um, down the line because obviously this is going to be the biggest issue um, <laughs> next year. So we will discuss that further then. But that is my thing for both of them. Unless they physically cannot campaign due to for health, both Biden and Trump a health problem, or in just Trump's case, is that he's detained in some type of prison facility, they will be the ones running, and that's we're just going to witness a rematch of 2024. So we have one more issue to discuss um, before I get to the league questions is that I posted a tweet that got a lot of controversy last week is that in Spain, one of the leaders of the Vox Party, which is their nationalist party, was shot in the face by left-wing assassins. He, he survived, but there were mass riots over in Spain over this and fighting with police. Is this going to lead to any type of revolution or, or activity? I don't know. They're having a lot of big protests, but Europeans just kind of aggressively riot and protest all the time and it doesn't quite lead to stuff i mean like french riot like twice a year like there's big riots um there was riots earlier this year i mean that was that was different from ordinary riots where they were rioting over COVID stuff which is generally the white people and you know police allow them to run rampage but then they all go home and uh there wasn't there wasn't any big damage caused. this summer it was i wasn't even spring it's Time flies by when you're being key. But earlier this year when there were the riots, it was all the immigrants and there was all rioting against the white racist police. And so there was definitely a racial element there. But when there's, you know, even the right protests, is it actually going to lead to something? Probably not. But it does indicate, you know, how there is a strong element of within the right there that is willing to take the streets and fight police and, you know... Uh, you know, shit will hap- can potentially happen and, and, and pop off in Europe based on what you see. These people, you know, they're able to, you know, have thousands and thousands of people just take the streets and and show up for their cause. And I tweeted it when I seen this is like, you know, Euro right wingers riot when one of their leaders is nearly killed, while American right wingers buy discounted T-shirts when <laughs> their favorite president is arrested and it got a lot of attention, but there was a lot of people who were very angry. A lot of people didn't uh, really uh, convey um, uh, a clear argument against it. They were just saying, fuck you. And it was like very much angry. And there was a ton of cope going on there. Why American right-wingers are not rioting. I want to put this out, clarify, is that I don't think American right-wingers should riot or protest. Because let's look at Charlottesville and j six. Both of those things uh, did not go well for the right. They've actually turned out to be very counterproductive because they accomplished things, you know, marked a huge crackdown on the right. I mean, Charlottesville, there is all these Confederate statues being toppled, which that was the whole point was to protest against the toppling of Confederate statues. Instead, they accelerated it. And also the Internet and social media all decided to censor the alt-right and the alt-right was crushed in the aftermath of Charlottesville. I mean, it was destroyed and became no longer a force that anyone takes seriously after Charlottesville. And J6, you know, it really hurt, you know, the right side. It was not probably a, a smart thing. And it was so bad that now we've had to decide that it was all the work of federal agents, which there's, of course, were tons of federal informants in there. And some of them were initiating um, some of the break-ins and other things that our peers that they were. But overall, overall I mean, there were... Uh, you know, a thousand, you know, thousands of people who decided it was a smart idea to go into the capital uh, with no clear plan, which not the smartest thing. Obviously, I don't think it was that big of an issue. I mean, we see we've seen all these Palestinian protesters invade the capital with no one caring. This is just a normal thing. And most of them, there was not doing any type of violence. They were just walking around sightseeing, taking pictures of the statues and then they walked out and they're like, this is a coup. It was like no coup at all. And (laughs) so it wasn't that big of a deal, but it turned out to not be uh, that smart of an idea, which should just show. And people were pointing out, like, saying, like, well, it was mostly peaceful protests. True. And it was much more peaceful than what we're seeing in Europe. True. And look at what happened. And all very true. There are higher consequences. But I mean, these guys are also getting arrested, too, and stuff. And Europe, that is. So I think to answer is like, why you see this in Europe versus America. And what this means for what the right tweets about all the time. Because all these people are, you know, trying to co-post. And some people are like saying, oh, Trump abandoned these people. So I'm not going to fight and die for this guy. You know, there was a guy who was saying this um, to me. He was like, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to fight and die for this guy. He abandoned us. And this guy was also DeSantis supporter. And then once I pointed out, he's DeSantis this really courageous fellow then blocked me and started saying uh, very mean things about me behind a block. So once again, so showing the courage of the people who are always ready to start a revolution. But, you know, there's, there's So there's a couple things to take away. It's like why Europe does this versus America? Some of it is that I don't think the prison system is as terrifying for Europeans as it is for whites here in America because imagine you're a middle-class white person you have a normal life you're there and then you're caught at a protest and then you're thrown in the legal system and jail is a complete jungle compared to your normal life not saying like European jails are a walk in the park either some of them mean, depends on where it is France they're pretty tough um Scandinavia not so much (laughs) or at least they used to not be but You know, they're probably they're still not as bad as American jails. And it's a huge problem when it becomes like you're a standard middle class person and then you interact with the jail system. And then your life in just like one arrest can ruin your life, which I think with Europeans, they they're able to rely on this hooligan element, you know, soccer hooligan element to be at these protests and stuff. And a lot of these guys have already had interactions with the law. You know, it's not that big of a deal for them to spend a weekend in jail. They're out. You know, they have a working class job. You know, it's their friends also have had scrapes of the law. It's not that big of a deal, and so they're more probably willing to engage in this because there's not as um, the high of risk as it is with America with American right wingers to engage in this type of activity. Two is that they have an urbanized population with among right. I mean, the right has. You know, there are people in a lot of these major cities who vote right wing. You know, New York City does have a lot of people who vote Republican. The problem is they're dwarfed by the people who vote Democrat. And it's the same in Los Angeles. You know, there's a lot of people who vote Republican there, but they're overwhelmingly dwarfed by the Democrat element. And you can even see this in New York where it's, you know, these uh, ordinary people who are likely Trump supporters you know, are vigorously protesting all these migrant uh, centers around, you know, taking up space and and ruining their communities. So they're able to organize in that way, but it's just, for the most part, most right-wingers are rural areas and suburbs where they're not going to go and riot in their rural area or suburb over something that's happening nationally. They really have to drive like an hour or hours to a place where they're going to protest like in D.C. and that's when they're going to do it they have to travel far distances to ride and generally if you're traveling far distances you're not inclined to uh aggressively protest because you know you've got i've got to get back home i got to do all these things i got a long car ride ahead you know taking on police is a little bit too much of a responsibility and so they're not going to do that and they're much more spread out geographically spread out is also a thing so Right is able to call upon people in a lot of these cities. And there's still very right wing cities in Europe where they are able to elect like nationalist mayors and other things, which in America, pretty much every city with more than 50,000 people is almost entirely Democrat, Uh, with some exceptions, with some exceptions. You know, Jacksonville's pretty Republican, even though they just uh, elected a Democrat. Indianapolis used to be pretty Republican, but now they have a Democrat. Dallas is still pretty Republican. Uh, their black mayor just switched over to Republican Party. Uh, that's a place where Republicans actually compete for the mayoral race. but even like cities that you would think are conservative are not are extremely liberal like Nashville there's no chance that a, a, like a Republican ever win that city. And there's a couple other places you know there's very few places where there is. There's a couple of places where hundred thousand or 50 to hundred thousand where Republicans can compete. Uh, but they have to it's like competitive and i remember looking because in virginia they have this is 2020 in virginia they have this weird way of districting where there's all these independent cities that are outside of counties and i looked up how and this would be for most cities like charlottesville lynchburg richmond arlington alexandria but there's even like small places like staunton um I think Harrisonburg is its own little uh, city too, uh, independent of the county. And you go to these places, and in 2020, every one of these places, even if they only have like 30,000 people, and they are surrounded by a big red county, went for Biden. <laughs> in pretty much every one of these places. So it's like any large urban area, you know, it's all automatically Democrat. There's uh, there's obviously some exceptions to this but you know in europe they're still able to have they're still able to nationalists are still able to compete in a lot of these major urban areas which that's uh that's a total fantasy for the right that's a but that's a little bit of digression so they're more urban concentrated they don't have to travel much they're just there they're called up you know they take a train you know from the from wherever they are they're able to be there. They're able to call up these people in these urban areas. Well, and the for us, our people are spread out, scattered all over the place, you know, in rural and suburbs. They're not going to protest. And that's why there was nobody for, ma- mass protest for Trump is that they all worried that there would be these J6 stuff. But, you know, they're, all they really had were these tiny protests outside of the, uh, the Georgia courthouse in, in D.C. and then outside of Mar-a-Lago. That's it. So along with being geographically spread out in areas where there's not going to be a mass protest in the farmland, uh, you know, their right wingers have something to lose. It's probably been the case in Europe. But I think, as I said, they have a hooligan element that doesn't have much to lose. <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, you know, we're going to be fighting in the bars anyway. Might as well be fighting police or standing up for our nation or our country our political party this week, you know, they do have that element there. We don't really have a hooligan element within our right, uh, even in Britain, where there's like so much, you know, arrest and they're really come down hard on the right. You know, they still have a hooligan element that will challenge this stuff. I mean, they were having brawls over uh, Remembrance Day this week, this weekend. And they were, were challenging BLM over the statues. You don't have a hooligan element here in America. And that's in generally, I mean that's I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing. Uh, it's some ways good, some ways, maybe not so good, but it is just what it is. Even if you look at J6, I mean these guys were not hooligans. These were middle class guys in their 40s who are coming and just were really upset about what had happened in 2020, both you know, BLM riots, the lockdowns, the election. They're just, you know, and they were fed up. And, you know, 2020 had that effect on people. But we no longer live in 2020 where people were just, you know, really uh, the lockdowns and all the other all crazy stuff had really done a number of people. And that's even what inspired, I think, a lot of the BLM riots, too, is that why so many people took the streets and were so violent. because people had gone crazy by being locked down. And J6 was the rights version of that. But... Uh, so these guys, but these guys were not hooligan elements. These were respectable members of the community who just um, had had a rough year. And that's the thing about the right wingers is right wingers have something to lose. And look at all these J sixers. A lot of them have lost everything. You know, they've lost their family, they've lost their job, they've lost their reputation, they've lost their very freedom. And it was all was a lot of them don't feel it was worth it. And I think when right wingers see what happened to J six, they're like, we don't want to repeat this again. And I think. Some of what's going on with the cope is that they feel that any public gathering of the right is immediately controlled by the feds and infiltrated by the feds and that they're just gonna be arrested by showing up in public with other people and uh, that that's not really the case sometimes that's a good reason to, because there's a lot of stupid activity that people want to show up to uh, and it's maybe good that they don't but it really does come down to that any peaceful protest is uh, is infiltrated by the feds and you shouldn't go to. I remember when there was a protest in favor of the J6ers. I think this was in 2021. And there was a lot of federal presence there. So maybe it was not the best idea to go to, but everyone's like, this is immediately a federal honeypot. Do not go. They're trying to arrest the entire right. And really, it was just kind of just like 80 people standing around a park surrounded by like thousands of law enforcement (laughs) because they thought another j6 was going to happen and now there's not that really j6 hysteria because they saw after trump you know they locked down you know they had high security the first time he got indicted and then nothing happened and then they're like oh they're not actually not going to repeat this and it's because right-wingers saw what happened on j6 they took the right lessons from that some but some of it was also cope uh reasons of uh, but also, they they all have something to lose, and they don't want to give it up for political protests. And we don't have a hooligan element among the right. But I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit more about this uh, in an IQ supplement this week. It's been mainly been focused on Charlottesville, but not quite on the uh, the uh, aggressive demonstration aspect, but on a lot of other aspects. But the thing I want to get out bef- uh, to conclude with this segment and the main reason I tweeted this out and the lesson I wanted people to learn, which a lot of people weren't learning, is that. All the time on Twitter and on social media and even in private, like the right is like you're about to waken up a beast that you're not expecting. though you violence is coming, revolution is coming, civil war is coming. And that in reality, you know, the right is no physical threat. You know, it's I don't want to say quite harmless, but it's not geared up for revolution. It's not geared up for civil war. It's not geared up for any of this stuff. Look at what we I mean, over the past three years, we've seen the left take to having very aggressive demonstrations, very violent demonstrations. You know, look at what happened with BLM riots. Look at what's happened with the pro-Palestinian protests now. And with the pro-Palestinians, these guys are actually taking major risks to do this because, you know, there's all these people who are doxing people, taking pictures of their faces, getting them fired for their jobs. Now even trying to get them deported and the social reputational risk, and then also they're getting arrested. There's a lot of risk for going up to these protests. These are not risk-free events. You could have said, like, the... The the peaceful BLM protests were obviously risk free. Uh, These have even the like the ones that are not getting like aggressive are pretty all carry risks. And the left still does it. And the right is always like saying like, oh, we're more violent. We're extremely dangerous. You don't fuck with us. Fuck around and find out. And really, there's no physical representation of this stuff that you always see online. And all these people always confidently predict that the right is going to have a revolution and a civil war at some point and just overthrow the government. And then you see, you know, when Trump, get if he gets convicted in 2024, there are not going to be mass protests. There is not going to be any type of uprising. And this would be the one event for this because this is a man who's supported by over 60% of the Republican electorate. They view him as their leader, as you know, there's almost a messiah-like quality to Trump and that they are devoted to him. And you are not going to see any type of violence from that. And the fact you're not going to see any type of violence from that indicates that the right is not going to be engaging in type of any social uprising or revolution anytime soon. We are primarily made up of middle-aged people with a lot to lose. They engaged in J6 and stuff because I felt, I think at that time, they didn't realize that there would be consequences. I mean, maybe maybe they were thinking that BLM riots made riots legal, which unfortunately, they're only legal for the left. And they just had like an insane year uh, of, of a lot of stuff that had built up and people had just had enough. But that was, you know... Uh, I think they quickly they learned the lesson a hard way that that's not the way to respond to it or that there's going to be severe consequences if that's how they respond to it. And so we do these people realize the cost of doing this stuff. And, you know, you always see people like posting all the time and and saying like, oh, we'll we'll have our ordinary life. You know, we'll go pick up the kid from T-ball and then we'll blow up a post office. And then you're like, that's just not going to happen. These are people with, when you have stuff to lose, you're not going to engage in revolution. People engage in revolution when they have literally nothing to lose. And when you still have people who have owned homes, have families, have jobs, have, you know, they're in their forties too. They're not willing, you know, they've got a lot of health problems too, probably. And they're not like, um, like youth who can, you know, no bad knees, no bad backs, no stomach problems. <laughs> they're able to just go out and do whatever they want. Um, so that is a lot of the core constituency of the right. So I, ju- I just think when you see the riots, I, people know, listen, to this long time, I get really fed up with uh, promises of revolution and civil war. But when you're seeing what you're seeing in Europe and what you're seeing here should disabuse American right wingers of all these fantasies we have and just focus on realistic solutions and and realize what our base is and what they're capable of. And they're not capable of a violent revolution. They're not capable of these mass demonstrations you see coming even out of the pro-Palestinians. And they're not even capable of the stuff that we're seeing in Spain and in France coming from the right. But they are capable of voting. <laughs> and in a lot of cases, what happens here in America with American right matters more than what happens in Spain and Spanish, Spanish right. I mean, it's cool what the Spanish nationals are doing, but Spain is not one of the countries that really matters. I'm sorry if there's any Spaniards among ours, but there's like only a few countries that really matter, like France, Germany. I would say Italy probably matters more than Spain. Uh, The UK matters, but America matters more than any of them. And what we vote for and what our politicians are capable of matters probably a lot more than just some street demonstration in Madrid. Um, but so I don't think it's like a total black pill as we just have to organize effectively to make the positive change we want. And it's not going to involve riots and violent revolution or any of this type of stuff. People, uh, you know, fantasize about 24 seven on Twitter and social media. It's going to be evolving the normal political process. And through the normal political process, we're much more capable of creating change than street demonstrators in Madrid. So that is it for the regular episode or our regular topics. Now we're going to get on to the Cognitive Elite. And as a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Cognitive Elite option at highlyrespected.substack.com. And make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. And I also sent a reminder to the Cognitive Elite about how to ask questions and stuff. And so we're getting a ton of questions now. And so I love this. So, But it's sometimes I want to always make sure that I'm getting them properly organized and I'm getting all to them. And so I left some instructions to leave to ensure that I get to your question and I see it and we are able to educate and inform the rest of the audience about your great question. So I will get right into it. So we'll start off with a new member of the Cotton League, and his name is Dollar Bill. And he asked this question. It's about WWE wrestling. (laughs) Uh, So he says, question. Hi, Scott. Um, Just one. And... What are your feelings on professional wrestling? Some thoughts I'd like to share. Vince McMahon and WWE have always celebrated MLK Day and Black History Month, but their main competitor, AEW, is much more libtarded, having transgender wrestlers on the roster. And during their shows, you can see their redder audience holding signs, showing their support for the latest leftist cause. How does pro wrestling fit in with the Greerhead Pledge? I imagine not very well, since being a pro wrestling fan is low status and embarrassing to admit as an adult. As you grew up in the South during the 90s, were you a WCW mark? Uh, you know, I'm probably going to disappoint this guy, but I am not really a fan of pro wrestling as a kid. I liked WWF. It was WWF at the time. I didn't really like WCW that much. Um, D generation X era when the rock was there. Um, I was, uh, like eight years old or something. And so I was really into that era. I liked that. And I remember for one year, um, I was really into like staying up and seeing like who won the wrestling matches and stuff. And, but that was just like one year. And then I grew out of it. And then as an adult, um, or as a teenager, I'm like, people are still into this. (laughs) And then as an adult, I still see people really into it. And I'm like, what? And I sometimes, they sometimes have WWE matches come on at the gym. Gym is where I interact with American pop culture, um, I used to go to a gym where the only way I would know pop hits is, uh, the current pop hits is if I heard it over the speakers. If you ever go to a Gold's gym, they always play it, which was a, a useful thing. Now, but I don't go to Gold's anymore. They don't have any music playing, which is beneficial in a lot of ways. But I'm not that much aware of what's the current pop hits. But I am aware of what's going on on TV. And sometimes they show WWE, and I see all the wrestlers, and it's all like what race is this wrestler? And then I look at the audience and like, what race are the fans? I can't determine it. It's like all racial ambiguity. It's all mixed together. It is very much um, not a part uh, with the Greerhead Pledge. But I realize there are a lot of right-wingers who like wrestling and people are allowed to have their guilty pleasure. So, you know, if that's your thing, it's your thing. But it is really not my thing. I find it... I. You know, when you're a kid, you uh, you wonder whether it's real or not. You know, when you're a really young kid, you can be like, "Well, is it fake? Is it real?" You know, when you're eight years old, you're able to convince that. But when you're in your thirties, you know, you know it's fake. You know, it's like over the top, and I don't really understand the um, the full uh, attraction towards it uh, with that. Um, so. But I do, I do know a lot of people who are into it. And I think a lot of people who are into it are very right-wing. At least with WWE, Mark, and knowing all the history. And I, so I have a lot of friends who are into it. But um, no matter what I watch it, I'm just like, <laughs> this is too much. This is definitely anti Greerhead America that I'm watching uh, a little bit too much. And like the intro music and all that. So the aesthetics and other things and... Just the fact that it is like theater it's a form of theater but it's a low brow theater it, yeah it's it's not my cup of tea but I'm not gonna hate on anyone who's uh, watching it and uh, we're, we're not gonna make I will not watch wrestling a part of the Greerhead pledge I will say that so for all those who may fear that that scenario we are not gonna have that but no I'm not that big of a fan of it and I do think there is like a huge redder thing into it because I there is a few. All these streamer accounts that I follow. And they're all obsessively into it. And they're very much in part of the like white trash aesthetic that's becoming more popular. And for most people, I think of a certain age and demographic, they're not into it. They realize that they're not supposed to be into it. But the popularity of it and the whole aesthetic sense of it, it is a part of the pro drift happening with America in itself. But... There are far worse entertainment options to watch, and I I do understand a lot of right wingers aren't too. So, uh, not my thing, but I'm not going to hate on you for it. So, we're going to go move on to another question. This is from Fake Cell Eradicator, and he's got a hypothetical for me. As whites continue to be replacing Americans to the 2030s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond, what will the different types of Demi status look like based on the different types of overlords we could end up with? Which could be the best and worst? Something to consider how will be how these groups change as they become third, fourth, fifth generation American. Our current framing and understanding of them is now first or second generation. First, Hispanic Ruling class. Option one: South Africa 2.0, ruled by American Obland Hordes. Option two, the meme of the 2048 Republican presidential candidate being Juan Santiago Hitler. Two, Indian ruling class, ruled by the high caste Brahmin offals who want to genocide us because we mispronounce their name in middle school. Option two, Vivek style, elite, anti-woke, assimilated CEO types. Three, Asian Chinese ruling class. They are probably smart enough to realize the loss in human capital wasted ROI if they just tried to Uyghur us and make us factory slaves. Maybe we can be people of the book style, small business owners, mid-level civil servants, janissaries, etc. Uh, so going over those options, one is just not going to happen. Hispanic ruling class. Hispanics are not going to be at all near a ruling class. They're very little part of the current elite. Most of the Hispanics who get into the top colleges are all castizos. They are not the mestizos. They aren't coming in. And I, You may see some Juan Santiago <laughs> Hitlers around. I don't think he will be the Republican presidential candidate in 2048. So there will not be a Hispanic ruling class. There will be a Hispanic working class. It's really just going to be the Hispanic and white working class merges and mixes uh, to a great extent over time. And it becomes even more proletarianized and like more like anti-college and more obsessed with uh, its own ways and norms. And it's further apart from the elite. It'll probably be in a large part more conservative than the standard Hispanics now. But there will be a lot of other problems with it. So no, we are not going to have a Hispanic ruling class. The second and third, it's just going to be an Asian um, uh, ruling class. Or there are going to be more of them, and you will see the the battle between option one and option two. You're going to see these types. You're going to basically see Pramila Jayapal versus Vivek Ramaswamy, and that's going to, and that's will also incorporate a lot of the East Asians. East Asians, I don't think, are going to get that into politics. It's not really their thing. South Asians seem to be much more into politics. I think they're much more into like gaining power and ruling over societies than East Asians are. East Asians kind of just want to be middle managers and other things. Uh, the, I, I don't think they really have this pursuit of power that the East-South Asians are. But in terms of political class, South Asians are going to be... I mean, we're already seeing that in the U.K., and in other parts of the Anglo sphere, of how overrepresented Asians are there. And that's really what the battle is going to be between this Vivek Ramaswamy versus Pramila Jayapal. And, but more squattish Pramila Jayapal. And so it's going to be this like extremely left, anti-white immigrant who, you know, complaining about colonialism is Black Lives Matter and is all about that versus you know, somebody who just wants a tech elite who is anti-woke and is not allowing uh, affirmative action to dictate company policies. And that'll be a lot of the political division over time. So uh, I I I highly doubt there will be a Hispanic ruling class uh, anytime soon or, or even really ever. But we will have an Asian, more of an Asian ruling class, and it will be a division between what you said with the option one of like an extremely anti-white once whites disenfranchised and basically reduced to total untouchable status versus the Vivek Ramaswamy types that are probably even still want like untouchable class, but they're less anti-white and they view this as their way to gain power. And that'll be the competition between them. So, uh, I guess that could be, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that could be uh, an interesting dynamic. I mean, this could all change if we severely limit Asian immigration, but that's probably the most likely to happen. So, we got some questions. These were questions submitted last week, but I didn't get to them uh, because they submitted very late. And the first question comes from Jack. He's. Uh, He said, what's your take on the recent New York Times polling show that that shows Trump ahead in several swing states, but also follow up that shows his support crater if he convicted on any of the charges against him? Do you still think it is likely he is convicted before the election and what should we do if he is? Yeah, I think it is. I think we really can't understand what will happen to his support uh, unless he is conviction, unless he is convicted, unless he is conviction. The conviction is such uncharted territory. We don't know how voters will react to it. I think the best guess is that it will negatively impact them against or, ne- or encourage them to disfavor Trump. But whether his support will totally crater, I I don't know if it will. But if he is convicted, he st- we should still support him for presidency no matter what, because either he becomes the next president or he is a martyr. And for the cause. And by martyr, he is, you know, he is politically persecuted and arrested and put in jail. And that's, but we stand by him no matter what. Because there's not a better alternative. DeSantis is effectively campaigning on how much he wants Trump in jail. Because his wife, who dominates his political campaign and dominates the way he's thinking, hates Trump and wants Trump in jail for saying mean things about Ron DeSantis. So DeSantis isn't even going to pardon him. Desantis isn't going to help him, and so why vote for a guy who's apparently such a big threat to the establishment if he is going to cheer on Trump's persecution? Nikki Haley would be a nightmare, so he is our best candidate, and we're sticking by him no matter what. And even if he is convicted, there's still a chance that he can win. Probably even if there's more of a chance he can win than Ron DeSantis can win, and I and I'm serious about that because. DeSantis, if he runs, he is so uncharismatic, he is so awkward, and he's going to have such a tough time winning over Trump voters that he would lose no matter what. I, I, I don't, he's not electable. I do think that there is, unfortunately, a chance that Haley could somehow win, but that's all dependent on Trump endorsing her. I don't think that Trump would endorse her. But there's a greater chance of Trump endorsing her than of him endorsing DeSantis. But I think it's like DeSantis' own fault. DeSantis is celebrating his persecution in a way that Nikki Haley isn't. Nikki Haley is much more pragmatic. Not, uh, She's a woman, so she doesn't have to worry about her husband uh, deciding all her, making all her decisions like Casey. And DeSantis will never offer a pardon. He will never offer a pardon. It will just be... Uh, but I think Haley would, and Haley, in a scenario where for some reason Trump can't run, uh, I think he would, he would, um, he'd be more likely to endorse Haley in that scenario. But I, even then, I think they would all have problems. Trump is the best position to actually win, even if he is convicted, because that is what the base wants. And if it's not Trump, and they did some shenanigans at the at the convention. And he's not on the ballot. They would alienate them and ensure they didn't vote. So it's Trump or bust. And that's it. That's my question on that. And that's how we should handle that. But I think there's still a good chance he delays all his trials, as I said earlier. I would say there's a, like an 80% chance he's convicted. But if he gets them delayed, which a very good chance, then his chances of election, of winning the election are more than 50%. So that's my white pill for you. Now on to another question that I did not get to because uh, they ended it uh, on Monday. Uh, they got him in right before I was about to record or after I recorded. And this guy actually had a Halloween question where he said, um, he joked that he uh, told uh, Black Christmas was a very scary movie. We watched on Tuesday. This movie is not scary. They have been making fun of me all week. That's unfortunate. But now he has, uh, Richard Hanania just wrote an article about the composition of the Republican Party. I think it kind of mirrored mirrored what you've been calling the insane clown party. I think you guys are right, but isn't there a, another issue than the composition of the Republican Party? The center-right disavows their fringes, but the left does not. Also, there is plenty of material on the stupid elements of the left that is ripe for ridicule. For example, magic people washing their chicken on the <laughs> or the 1,000 SJW compilations. I guess my point is is the insane clown party is probably here to say, shouldn't we be thinking about the best way can we can use we can use them to our advantage? It is true about the left. I don't know if that's the best example of the washing the chicken. I mean, that's like saying like, oh, Republican voters are represented by meth addicts in trailer parks. I don't think that's uh, that's true that that is a certain part of their demographic, but that's like not a political action of them. That's just uh, a sign of their um, uh, certain intelligence of some of their voters. The SJW stuff is a little bit more. I think the bigger example of how crazy their base is, but this has gone down in the severity is the resistance libtards, which those people were such a huge part of democratic discourse in during the Trump presidency is that they were insane. They believed anything like any grifter saying like Putin personally controls the White House You know, they were believing these theories that like Steve Bannon was about to be executed by the Supreme Court. You know, they had all this crazy stuff that was being believed. And this was being reflected by Democratic politicians who would just say, go on TV and say Trump is controlled by Putin. And they would go on to these insane conspiracy theories. They, a lot of that stuff has been toned down. Um, since then because we are a little bit less politicized now there's not Democrats are just not as worked up as they were under Trump this could all return maybe next year but they're just not that and even like the COVID hysteria and all that stuff is like these people worked them up into like locking themselves in their basement and going out in hazmat suits it was just nuts what was happening with these with these idiots so they are very stupid, but you know, and both sides have their own deranged um, components. And I think even a lot of the people in the middle don't really want to vote for Democrats because of the perception of their fringes, you know, with uh, you know the extremists that they they perceive on that side and all that. But I think one thing that Democrats have with their advantage, even with their fringes, they have a respectability status with them or a respectability advantage than the right. A lot of middle-class suburbanites view it as embarrassing to vote for Republicans now. Rightly or wrongly, they view that as embarrassing because they see uh, the insane clown party. They see what uh, they're voting for (laughs) with some of the Republican antics. They see Marjorie Taylor Greene, Burt, and all these idiots as now like the representative of the Republican politics, you don't really have, I mean, you have the squad, but I mean, the squad is hated more for their extremist positions, not for their uh, ridiculous personal behavior, (laughs) which is really what Boebert and MTG are mainly known for. And there's like a ton of other ridiculous uh, personal behavior associated with the right and they just view it as low class now with republicans while with Re- democrats they view it as like oh you're a respectable responsible person and they are the adults in charge obviously the democrats are no longer the adults in charge but the problem with republicans is that they can't present themselves as being adults in charge even if you're paying close attention to what congress is doing you know they can't even get uh, they can't figure out a way to effectively Get a budget through that has conservative proposals in it because they just want to maintain a maximalist position that can actually be achieved uh, with a thin majority. But it raises money and it looks good to the conservative media. So they stick with it. So I think that's like a big difference is that the left is the Democratic Party, unlike the Republican Party, is perceived as respectable we all know that may not be the true case, but that's how it's perceived by middle class, college educated white people. And that's why our biggest problem with Republicans now is college educated whites is that we're losing them in a massive degree. And it's due to the status anxiety. It's due to that respectability advantage that the Democrats have uh, status. Status advantage is actually a better way of saying this um, because they perceive Republicans as low status idiots And then they perceive Democrats as respectable, moderate forces, which, of course, not true. But that's how it's perceived. And Republicans don't do themselves any favors by indulging the Insane Clown Party uh, mindset on their own side. And I do think it is here to stay. And you really do have to appeal to the Insane Clown Party. I mean, Trump does it perfectly because Trump actually has a strong right wing vision and policy standards that he wants to advance. And he's advancing that discourse on our identitarian issues in a way. But he also appeal, but he's also extremely entertaining, and it's all about that. It's He's just very fun, and he can attract those type of people. So he knows how to push the insane clown party in a positive direction. I think the problem is, is that people who try to imitate him, they take just the style, and then they ditch the good stuff. So it just becomes the clown show... Without the nationalism. <laughs> um, but I think you, you're going to have... You can push the... You know, you just have to be more entertaining for these people. And talk to them in a language that they'll understand. But you don't want to go full saying clown party. You don't want to go full to that extent. Because then you'll lose college educated whites. And we don't make that up with the gains with Hispanics. And that is like the biggest issue with right now. So... I think the ICP is here to stay. I think you are going to kind of have Trumpian bombast and style going forward, and that will attract people. But the more important thing is how to figure out how to win college-educated whites back, and it is going to require a more respectable image <laughs> from the Republican Party and a more serious image uh, of what they can do to order to win it. And yeah, I know a lot of people aren't going to be happy with that, but if we can't win elections... Like, we're not, or we can't gain any political power. We're not going to be able to do anything. And so, some of that is also issue based. I do think the abortion issue is also hurting us among college educated whites, but it is what it is. It's not, it's not, it's not set for life. We can change this. We just have to do it. You know, we have to worry a little bit more about optics and, and where people are and what they're willing to support. And so, I just always want to. Argue for that. So moving along to other questions, we now got two questions from K Max. K Max, his first question is the GOP. Oh man, mess it up. The GOP debates feature Vivek and Nikki Haley, not even shaking hands, and Haley calling Vivek scum in the debate. Why, Scott, do you think that those two are the feud so much? Is it just Haley, who is the Bush McCain neocon wing that all rich donor support? Vivek is the Trump side with the pop support, but who inside Washington types do not like. Finally, your view of DeSantis in this debate. Uh, Why do they feud so much? Uh, Both of them want to feud a lot. They both want to have each other as the counterpoint of what they're arguing against. Haley went after Vivek hard in the first debate and was like saying like, oh, foreign policy stuff. She really hates his foreign policy views. And Vivek knows that Haley is a good punching bag to show as like the corrupt neocon establishment. And so that's why they feud so much. And Vivek knows when to pick fights and how to get under people's skin. It's very Trumpian esque m- maneuvers he's doing there. It's, it's actually very impressive because he, you know, anytime they all insult him, he just like laughs and like it, why, you know, it doesn't even hit him. No, it doesn't stick to him. Well, he really knows how to get under Nikki Haley's skin and all the other people's skin. And so I think it's more personal than feuding is that they generally don't like vivek is vivek (coughs) is just this guy who you know as a businessman who had completely different politics two years ago and now he has much better politics and they really don't like that they don't like that he has never held elected office and they view him as appealing to this dangerous populist nationalist side of politics which they are firmly opposed to so they really want to attack him and vivek knows that a lot of these people are make for good punching bags and targets and he knows what to say to get under their skin. So I think that's why they feud so much. Uh, DeSantis in the debate, uh, he wore his lifts again. I mean, the main thing is that he just doesn't make a mark. You know, there's no memorable line from DeSantis. It's just him. You know, he, he criticized Trump. He's going more on this attack Trump thing, which is what his advisors told him not to do. Even at the first debate, they told him Hey, just attack VVAC stand up for Trump. But instead, his wife uh, dominates his uh, campaign and instead attack Trump uh, all the time because they imagine that there's this huge constituency of hardcore conservatives that hate Trump. But outside of Twitter, they don't exist. So he's never he's never made his mark in any of these debates because he lacks any charisma and he lacks any. It's really just heavily scripted and comes off as inauthentic. He did do terribly, but it's the same that's always happened. And nobody really pays attention to these debates that much because the clear front runner's not there. And so it just gives an opportunity for Vivek to insult the other candidates, which is the main entertaining notion, and to insert interesting ideas about the debate that other people are not going to discuss. So... That's, uh, that's the first question. Second question from KMAX. Has the immigration question shifted? Every time I feel there will finally be a shifting view that we need to protect our border the way Israel does, it seems to go away. What is your view, Scott, on the 2024 election bringing up the border crisis and constant illegal migration? How much longer can they kick the can down the road? Well, it's shifted in our direction. I think if you look at what Republican politics are addressing immigration compared to 10 years ago, it is infinitely better you seeing, even they are calling for res- immigration restrictions for maybe not the best reasons over the Palestine protests, but you see the entire Republican Party unified in saying no Muslim immigration, or no Muslim no Palestinian refugees, and a lot of them are open to restricting re- immigration entirely from Muslim countries, which go back to when Trump proposed a Muslim man, the entire Republican Party, even Mike Pence, condemned him. Now they're all wanting to have their own Muslim Muslim ban as well. Maybe not calling it a Muslim ban, but it's in effect that way. Everyone is opposed to amnesty. There's no way that any Republican elected Republican can support a, any form of amnesty now. They'll sometimes try to do maybe an amnesty for dreamers or anything, but the type of full-scale amnesty we saw in the Gang of Eight amnesty of 2013, that's never going to happen again. And they are, and Republicans realize that immigration is their key to the White House because Is overwhelmingly unpopular. Democrats have nothing to show for it. And their position, their true position, is completely out of sync with the general population. So they are really at a loss on what they can do on that issue. And it's really going to help Republicans. They just need to focus on it more. I mean, the one good thing is that in these budget negotiations, immigration is pretty much at the center of it. There's just a lot of idiotic Tea Party stuff about government spending the budget from that won't go away. And that's the main problem with this stuff. So the immigration shift uh, question has shifted in our direction. There should be more attention towards it. But I think it's going to be so they really can't ignore it now. I mean, all these blue cities are having a massive immigration crisis. It's literally everywhere. They can't ignore it anymore. And it's going to play to Republicans' advantage in 2024. So, no, don't worry about it. Maybe they should talk about it more. I agree. And, uh, but it's not going away anytime soon. So we should be uh, just keep trusting the plan. That's my, uh, that is my take on that. So now we've got a, a questions from Mystery. We still got more questions to go. We love all these questions. His first question, are you still bullish on Trump in in 2024? The combination of RFK Jr. siphoning the anti-vax types away and an abortion referendum in Arizona and Nevada seems devastating, especially with Biden's traditional media and ballot harvesting advantages. I Don't worry about RFK Jr. I think he's going to not be a non-entity for 2024 and not really siphon away that many votes from Trump. I think he's also going to have a lot of trouble getting on ballots and other things. I, I think that's... Something that's got an overblown fear. I think his main problem is still the conviction abortion referendum. I think Trump is the best position on the abortion issue because he's just saying he just wants it out of the national picture. Just leave it to the states. He's far more moderate than any other Republican on this, and he's the most likely to make this not a national issue. And that's extremely important with Republicans. And I think it's Biden's traditional media ballot advantages. You know. It's also going to be he's even more senile. He's not going to be able to campaign much. And the country is going to even be in a worse state uh, November 2024 than it is now. And just look at how bad Biden's polling is now. So it's all coming down to whether he can stay out of a jail cell. And if he stays out of jail cell and even delay and if he is not convicted uh, by Election Day, I think he has more than 50 percent chance of winning. So a second question for mystery. People have spoken about some uh, about the GOP collapsing in a similar manner to the Whigs before the Civil War. And the party is obviously very divided. What do you think about a concerted effort to take over the Libertarian Party and replace them? Someone like Trump or Tucker would have to lead the charge. But an anti-immigration Libertarian Party as the new right wing would be pretty awesome. Um Two, I don't think the party is about to collapse because one, it's so institutionally built in. It's institutionally built in, in a way that the Whigs and the antebellum parties were not. And also, there's just so much money required to build a, a new GOP or a new party that it's just, it's pretty much impossible to create a third party now, a serious third party. When you had the Whigs collapse, it was over a serious issue and they took pretty much all the leaders from the Northern Whig Party into the Republicans. So it wasn't that big of a change. They just, the party divided, you know, Southern Whigs were kind of left partyless, but then the Northern Whigs moved over to the Republican Party and that was effectively just became a more, uh, a different, a new type of Whig Party that emphasized certain issues that the Whigs, that the previous Whigs didn't want to emphasize as much. But it's not likely to happen due to how the parties are situated now. Uh, taking over the Libertarian Party, we would just not win any seats. We would not take any of the donors with us. We would not take any of that operative network with us. You wouldn't take any of these elected lawmakers with us. You would have to deal with a fringe party where look at I mean look at the Libertarian to presidential debates where they where they violently argue over whether someone should have a driver's license. Do you really want to take over a party like that? No you don't. You'd have to you're just going to deal with a with a with a goofball show all the time and all these people and libertarians don't want Trump in there because the because of the vaccine. And even if you took over the libertarian party are you electing people? No. Are you holding political power? No. You're just Spoiling, uh, you're just ensuring that Republicans lose. That's all the Libertarian Party does. It just ensures Republicans lose. And it's not an effective way to advance your politics. If Libertarians were serious, they would be pushing Libertarian candidates in the Republican Party so they would then gain a foothold and have the ability to make policy. Instead, they have their own little party where they talk about banning driver's licenses and banning the age of consent and and legalizing heroin and how you should own a nuclear submarine and all this other stupid stuff. And, and also, of course, banning the police. So it's just like a, no, it's a silly show. You shouldn't, you have, unfortunately for however terrible the Republican Party is, it's our only political vehicle we have. And generally when people talk about other su- solutions, it's having a skull mass protest with 30 people on a bridge or it's about how they're going to give up politics. And instead of building a base committee, they just focus all their time and energy on the NFL and video games. So that's just it. I mean, I, there's a lot of terrible elements of the Republican Party. But the Republican Party is better and reflects our views much more so than it does 10 years ago or even five years ago. Even when Trump first got into office. The Republican Party is much more in Trump's mold and image than it was even when he took office in 2017. And it's they're more willing to adopt our issues than at any time in history or recent history. So you just have to use the political vehicle in front of us. I know there's like cringe and you have to make compromises, but it just is what it is. Uh, Taking over the Libertarian Party would be pointless because you expend all this effort and time to win over these goobers. And then at the end of the day, you're still you're not gaining any political power. You're not holding elected office. You're just... Uh, spoiling elections for Republicans. Maybe some people want to do that, but I don't think that's the best use of time. And anyway, I think that might, we always sending new records for how many questions we have, and we still haven't even got to our favorite New England refugee. And we always like to conclude with him. So he's saying, in Britain is, hey, Scott, in Britain, they are planning on banning smoking. In the U.S., they keep attacking the kinds of chewing tobacco we can have, and in cigs, we smoke. Why does the regime hate tobacco so much yet seem to love weed? Well, that's a great question. Well, they are trying to restrict weed. It's not like they're um, like saying like you. They do try to have legal purchase. You know, a certain age limit for weed, and um, to uh, you know, and you can get you know arrested for driving under the influence of weed as well. So it's not totally legal. I mean, it'd be about the similar restrictions of cigarettes and tobacco. They've always just really hated tobacco. Tobacco has just, due to effective propaganda over time, over the health uh, defects of, of tobacco, they've really turned against it, and especially in Europe and Canada. Because I know, I have like friends who, like a Canadian, they bring their show, their cigarette packs, and it's always these disgusting images of people with like throat cancer and stuff. And it's like, this is what happens when you smoke. And it's like... You know, just imagine having a cigarette pack and you see somebody with like a like a giant black hole in their throat. And you're like, oh, (laughs) Uh, maybe I don't want to maybe I don't want to smoke. So I understand that. But I'm actually I don't have a problem with people like smoking or, or tobacco. But I really don't like how the right views this as like part of their health advice. Everyone's like we you know, you see all this health advice on on like social media where it's like, We're not going to use sunblock. We're not going to have seed oils. We're going to be sunning our balls. And we're also going to be tobacco maxing. And it's like pretty much every study shows the negative effects of tobacco. (laughs) Like there are no positive. Like There are no health, the real health benefits to it. It leads to, you know, tons of problems with heart, tons of problems, obviously lung cancer. All these types of conditions to start with. And people are just like oh, I'm, max, I'm tobacco maxing at all times. And I kind of understand the, the rush from it, you know. It's like you know, it's like a higher version of coffee, you know. And people like that; they that's the energy spark it gives them, puts them in a better mood, especially with the chewing tobacco and the zen and stuff. So I understand that, but I really don't like the like the promotion of it because we're like we're really into health benefits, and then it's like you should smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. This is really good for you. And it's like, no, it, it generally ruins your health. It's actually generally bad. And so I'm not that into it. If I know there's a lot of cigarette smokers and tobacco users out there. So this is once again, I'm not gonna add no tobacco to it, um, but I do wanna push back against the overt glorification of cigarette use and smoking that is on our side where they've now pretend it's like a massive health benefit. And it's no, it's like you're, it's like signing up for lung, (laughs) lung cancer. It's like in generally bad for your heart and for your respiratory and for your cardio. It's, it's just not good. And I don't know why everyone's into it. It's just like a way of, it's kind of like a way of being edgy and rebellious, I guess. And so people want to say it and it's like, we're, we're owning the libs by smoking a pack of cigarettes. You're also owning your lungs too and your health, but uh, people want to do that. But I, I, I'm generally, I don't want the full-on Canada smoking bans and putting like you know disgusting images on smoking packs with that, and uh, I don't, I don't like the uh, other you know restrictions on chewing tobacco and stuff. And it's tobacco and smoking. Tobacco use has gone down in our country, so I'm generally a libertarian on that matter. But I also. Want to stand up against the uh, the tobacco propagandists who somehow believe that this is a massive health benefit when it's clearly not. But that's that's my thoughts on that. Uh, probably will return to that issue more in the future if there's like there'll probably be some type of news story and some type of insane online reaction that will allow that will um, encourage me and inspire me to do, have a go off moment on tobacco propagandists. But that day is not today. So that is it for Highly Respected. We are going to have more great content coming later this week. So tune in for that. So until next time, stay respected.